This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Onelinzinzi, Husane Matabula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. Authorities in Sudan have vehemently dismissed as untrue accusations made by the London based human rights organization Amnesty International. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has grabbed off two key ministries, including that of internal security and that of the East African Community Affairs. The World Food Programme is scaling up its emergency operations in southern Madagascar. In economics, Africa has lost more than three billion US dollars of tax income through smuggling, terrorism, and corruption since 2014. Here's on Thank you, Spoo. Zambia's leading opposition United Party for National Development, UPND President Hakainde Hichilema and Vice President Geoffrey Mwamba have been arrested. The two were arrested yesterday on grounds that they blocked roads when they visited UPND members incarcerated at Kamfinsa prison last week. The arrest has resulted in law enforcement's fighting running battles with unhappy UPND supporters. Hilda Akakelwa has more. The two leaders were summoned by police for interrogation following a complaint from one of the district commissioners on the Copper Belt that Mr. Hichilema and Mr. Mwamba were holding a meeting in his district without a permit. HH, as is fondly referred to, said together with his vice president they spent the night in the police holding cells, but their spirits are not broken. Honorable Jack Mwimbo, a lawyer and head of the opposition in parliament, says the harassment is unwarranted. Verts University students in South Africa are having a mass meeting in preparation for Friday's General Assembly at the main campus in Johannesburg. The students earlier occupied the campus in an attempt to mobilize more support for the Fees Must Fall movement. The university will hold a General Assembly on Friday to discuss issues around free education. In the history of Verts, only 10 General Assemblies have been held. The last one was in September 2005. Did reports. The meeting is aimed at discussing matters that need to be raised at the General Assembly. The SRC leadership have threatened to shut down the university again if free education is not announced. Earlier, dozens of VETS students attempted to march from the medical school to the main campus in Bramfontein, but they were stopped by police because they don't have a permit to march. They were then taken by buses to the campus. The students have appealed to the public to join them at the General Assembly tomorrow. Birthday. South Africa's new incoming public protector advocate, Musisi Uwem Kwebani, says her office will be the vanguard of the poor and the downtrodden. She was speaking after receiving a formal letter of employment from President Jacob Zuma. Mkwebane will take over the outgoing public protector, Tulima Donzela, on the 14th of this month. She says while she will target corruption, her key role will be to defend the most vulnerable. 
my priority will be the old cases. Imagine a person rights being violated, a person couldn't access electricity since 2012. I think that's a priority for me to make sure then that the person who's at the grassroots is attended to. Yes, the issue of the state capture is also very important because at the end of the day, if there's maladministration, it does have an impact on people at the grassroots level as well. We will have to then weigh the option to see how can we progressively deal with those cases, which one is a matter of life and death. A senior government official says all members of Kenya's Electoral Commission have resigned ahead of next year's presidential election. This after waves of opposition protests called for them to go. Joseph Kinyua, the president's chief of staff, says President Uhuru Kenyatta received the resignation letters of the 10 commissioners, including the chairperson. At least five people died when police opened fire at opposition supporters who held a series of demonstrations in July to demand the commissioner's resignation, accusing them of bias and corruption. Under pressure from opposition and civil society, the government offered the commissioners a hefty settlement to leave office. Rights groups have questioned why the government had to pay commissioners accused of having links to corruption. And finally, a formal vote at the United Nations on Thursday is expected to confirm former Portuguese Prime Minister Antonio Guterres as the world body's new Secretary General. In a vote in the UN Security Council on Wednesday, none of the permanent members opposed him. The final decision on who succeeds the outgoing UN Chief Ban Ki-moon will be made by the General Assembly. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The latest results from the straw poll that we have is that uh, Antonio Guterres received 13 encouraged votes. He received no vetoes and two no opinions expressed. So that's out of the 15 members of the council. And crucially in the sixth straw poll that was just held today, for the first time they introduced colored ballots. Colored ballots to indicate who the permanent five members were. Of course they have uh, the, the power through that veto to block any candidate. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. Seventeen oh six Central African time is still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now authorities in Sudan have vehemently dismissed as untrue accusations made by the London based human rights organization Amnesty International that the Khartoum government has prevented international aid organizations from entering places where thousands of people are in dire need of humanitarian assistance. Here's James Shimanula. The government of Sudan, through official spokesman for President Omar Hassan Ahmed el-Bashir, says it has not blocked staffers of international aid organizations from entering areas inhabited by thousands of people in need of food in the troubled and disputed South Kordofani region. One part of the region is controlled by rebels of Sudan People's Liberation Army North, while the other is under the control of the Khartoum government troops. For over five years, Khartoum jet fighters have made frequent flyovers in South Kordofan, dropping bombs targeting civilian populated areas. The air-to-ground military action has forced nearly half a million people of Kordofan to live in fear, with nearly half of them living in caves. 
Earlier this week, Amnesty International, the London-based human rights organization, claimed that Khartoum authorities have prevented the international aid agencies from reaching people needing assistance. To get the Khartoum government reaction, I spoke by telephone to President al-Bashir's spokesman, Rabi Abdelati, who vehemently denied Amnesty International claim, but in a nitty-gritty answer, Abdelati had this to say, which implied that his government allows international aid agencies to enter the world's threatening Kordofan region. Yes, no problem, no problem. For the organizations that want to assist, you know, they can come through the Sudan and they can provide aid to certain Kordofan areas affected by war. Amnesty International, the London-based human rights organization is claiming that Khartoum is preventing international aid agencies from crossing into areas where civilians are in dire need of food and other essential commodities. How do you react to that? No, 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 no. Surely, you know, our president already announced for ceasefire now there is a will of our government to go through and to implement all what mentioned in the roadmap. President Omar Hassan al-Bashir's spokesman, Rabi Abdelati, also denied that his government's military jet fighters have been bombing South Kordofan. The Khartoum government's denial, as has been said at the outset, comes at a time when international aid agencies have been restricted to enter the troubled South Kordofan region. To affirm that indeed South Kordofan is a restricted area to aid agencies, let's hear what Amnesty International researcher for Sudan Priscilla Nyagoa Tut says about the restriction. Since 2011, the government has restricted the, the kind of access people can get into South Kudufan. Certainly, the government has restricted access to most areas, to most SPLM north-controlled areas of South Kudufan. What message do you have for the people of Kudufan? To the people of South Kudufan, we urge them to remain strong. As the message from Amnesty International researcher Priscilla Nyagoa to, to, to the people of South Kordofan in Sudan to remain strong sinks into thousands of desperate South Kordofan residents. Time will tell whether or not they will endure the strength of being strong while Khartoum jet fighters continue to fly over their caves and rural homes to drop bombs. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has scrapped off two key ministries, including that of internal security and that of the East African Community Affairs. During yesterday's cabinet reshuffle, three ministers lost their seats with others given new portfolios. The shake-up also saw some two of four governors fired. From Kigali, here's Sylvanas Karimera. The reshuffle came barely two years after President Paul Kagame did a main shake-up in his cabinet. This time, however, key ministries, including that of Internal Security Affairs, has not survived in the third member lineup. On the other hand, the new arrangement saw the creation of two new portfolios. State Minister for Constitutional and Legal Affairs in the Ministry of Justice and State Minister for Socio-Economic Affairs and Development in the Ministry of Local Government. I spoke to Dr. Eriki Ndushabandi, a university lecturer and a political analyst in Rwanda. Why do we change or uh, renew the system? 
it can be based on uh, a regional context or internal demands. So they are to, to readapt the, the, the governance system uh, according to the demand in the society internally, but also in the region. We know security issue is a security cross-cutting issue when it comes to development and the uh, thriving of any nation. But having this portfolio scrapped off, in this case, Ministry for Internal Affairs, is it really timely? Was it necessary to have it gone? Or what could be analysis on that? Yeah, my analysis could be based on, um, on first of all, looking at what this ministry was doing. Mm-hmm. It, it is based mainly on, uh, uh, on security analysis. And second, looking at small arms circulation and, and, uh, and light arms in the, in the country and in the region. Uh, taking from the first one, I could say, let's look at the uh, 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 affiliated institu- institutions like police, yeah, Rwanda National Police, uh, Rwanda Correction Services, Ombudsman Services, including all the mechanisms uh, put in place to, to resolve problems at the grassroots. We can look at our system and, and, and others. But to guarantee security of people, for example, this is a mission we can look at in the police and the army and, and uh, even those specialized bodies of security. So the Ministry of Internal Affairs can, can be uh, changed for this reason that, that we are seeing the professionalization of our national police. In addition, the East African Community Affairs docket has also been scrapped off as an independent ministry and emerged with the Ministry of Trade and Industry to form the Ministry of Trade, Industry and East African Community Affairs. The 30-member cabinet includes 11 women representing 36% of it. Sylvanus Kremera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Your time is 17.14 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. If you want to get in touch with us, find us on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za on email. You can also find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1 over there. It's Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1714 Central African Time. Now the World Food Programme is scaling up its emergency operations in southern Madagascar. David Orr, who is the regional communications officer for the organization, says as a third consecutive year of drought deepens the suffering of hundreds of thousands of people in the south of Madagascar, the World Food Programme is scaling up its humanitarian operations in response to rising levels of hunger and malnutrition. Well, that's right. This is a humanitarian operation um, which targets the south of the country, which has experienced three years of consecutive drought. 
we're talking about two-thirds of the population that is food insecure. One-third of the population of the South is extremely food insecure. And by that we mean really these are people who don't know where their next meal is coming from. I've just come back from the South and we were in villages there where people are relying largely on cactus fruit to survive. They just don't have enough food because our harvest failed. Uh, we're also talking about children and even babies who are being given cactus fruit to eat because there isn't enough food available. How dire is the situation? I'd say the situation is very severe for many people. There are certainly rising levels of malnutrition, particularly among children. And it will get even worse because next year's harvest is still a long way off. People have now already begun to enter the lean season, the domestic food stocks are depleted. And as time passes, the situation is definitely going to get worse. And we estimate that by the end of the year, there could be one million people in need of humanitarian assistance. And that's the number we're trying to scale up to reach. But we will only be able to do that if we get the necessary funding. How is the funding coming with regards to the assistance of the people in diasporas now in Madagascar? Well, we need overall, we estimate $92 million to scale up all our programs to meet the need in the South. We have raised $13.13 million so far, so we've got a shortfall of $79 million to scale up our assistance programs. And they are food distributions, also distributions of cash in areas where markets are working, nutrition programs for women and children. And ultimately, we'd really like to skip up our school meals program as well if we got the funding, working closely with other partners, the government and UNICEF and so on. Another program that we're looking at launching now is one in partnership with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, which is designed to make the farmers better able to cope with the impact of drought. And this is a program whereby we distribute the food and FAO steps in with drought-resistant seeds and tools. It's really important that this program be launched in advance of the planting season, which starts next month. Um, So before the rains come and before farmers start planting their crops, we really need to get them the food to keep them going, and also they need the seed so that they're ready for next year, because without that, they really have nothing. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel that the planting season will go on smoothly so that the next year the harvest will be able to cater for the people who are now not having anything to eat? Well, I think all we can hope for, really, is good rains in coming months and that people will be able to plant and look forward to a good harvest next year. I think the forecasts are for above-average rains, but I think it's possibly still a little too early to be totally optimistic. As I say, after three years of drought, this is a part of the country that has really been hit very hard and I think we just got to be optimistic, really, and hope for the best. Are there no measures in Madagascar that have been put in place in order to be able to deal with such situations as it is with this El Nino phenomenon that has struck the area of southern Africa? Well, I think you're right. I think that's absolutely it. This is an area that has been badly affected by climate change, and there is a real need to build the resilience of smallholder farmers in these areas to make them better able to withstand the impact of drought. 
as I say, that's the importance of programs like the one we have with the UN Food and Agriculture Organization to help people be more prepared in future. So increasingly, we'll be working to provide food to community members, and they, in return, will give their labor for the construction of what we call assets that are thinking of things like irrigation channels, uh, small dams, so that when rain does come, they're able to save some of it. And as I say, the drought-resistant seeds, very important. They have those so that they're a little bit better able to withstand the impact of reduced rains, which, as you say, we've really seen in the last season with the El Nino, which has, of course, brought uh, very meager rains and, as a result, failed a poor harvest right across southern Africa. But the south of Madagascar really has been badly hit. David O is Regional Communications Officer for the World Food Programme, talking to Wandile Khalipa from Antananarivo in Madagascar. Mining experts are meeting in Johannesburg, South Africa, to drive the way forward for the industry and share insight into global commodity markets, prospects and investment opportunities. In a conference that ends today, former Finance Minister Trevor Manuel has pointed out that foreign direct investment into the country has fallen to a fraction of what it was, from being number one in gold in the world to, seven, to seventh position. Bernard Swanepoel, Joburg Indaba chairperson, says the conference has been focusing on the challenges the industry is facing at the moment. This is our fourth edition and it's gone from strength to strength. I think it's the place where we really discuss the issues that we are facing as an industry. Yesterday we touched on a wide range of topics, including some political inputs from the ANC and others. And today we are dealing uh, in what we call face-to-face conversations. We're bringing stakeholders together, community and investors, companies and fund managers, and we are putting the issues on the table and let uh, the different parties uh, share their views on it. You know, this industry has got the potential to continue to be the engine room of our economy, and clearly we are not fulfilling our destiny and our potential. And so I think we should all take stock and say, what is stopping us? Um, And instead of just blaming the government, and clearly there are some significant issues with regards to the leadership and the regulatory environment, but issues like safety and productivity and cost are issues very directly under the influence of the companies, and also raising those and asking the CEOs, some 20 or 30 of them that have uh, been on the platform, is what are you doing? To fix that, what are you doing to attract new investments into your companies? And we've had a really good uh, conversation on that as well. At the moment, uh, what challenges are there in the mining industry? Top of the list continues to be uh, regulatory certainty or lack thereof. This morning we've had a conversation um, uh, between uh, previous president of the National Union of Mine Workers and uh, Joseph Matundra from AMCU. And clearly, we are not even addressing the same topic from the same perspective. The level of mistrust uh, is significant. And as long as we uh, don't uh, share facts, as long as we come from different perspectives without even agreeing on the facts facing the industry, we've got a long way to travel. Those are the issues we are trying to uh, at least make some progress on. In the afternoon, we uh, are talking about the... uh, energy aspect of our industry and what to be done in terms of new sources of energy. We're also talking about innovation and new technologies. 
And then uh, right to the end of uh, the present of today, we have got some uh, companies uh, presenting typical investment opportunities into the junior sector, something which has always been near and dear to our hearts as the Joburg in Daba. Bernard, what are your thoughts on the nationalization of mines? We know that uh, Matunja also spoke on that, uh, saying that he thinks that a portion of mines should be nationalized. What are your, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, um, obviously uh, that has not worked anywhere in the world. Uh, it's not working particularly well in South Africa where state-owned enterprises are being held up with uh, examples of mismanagement and incorrect allocation of capital. And I must say, Mr. Matundra was uh, not arguing for uh, nationalization. He was much more arguing for mines which may no longer make sense to be run by the private sector should perhaps be taken over by the state. So it was definitely not a call for blanket uh, nationalization. But obviously, as a unionist, he would want jobs to exist forever. And therefore, he feels that some mines should end up in the hands of the government. Illegal mining has also been a bone of contention in the past few weeks, as we saw uh, in some mines around Johannesburg where uh, you know, illegal miners had died. Is this something that the Indaba is also looking at? No, we are not uh, getting to the topic of the uh, so-called illegal miners. Often those are abandoned uh, mines um, and the corporate entities that are involved here are typically not involved. Um, some of the mines have got a problem with uh, illegal miners, but uh, none of the mines here have got any uh, linkages to the Langlachte and other incidents which are currently making the headlines. The DMR uh, hasn't participated at that level uh, in this conversation, and clearly um, you know, the police and other people involved there are not part of our conversation. Bernard Sonapoli is Joburg in the chairperson, and he was talking to Kumotsumupulane. South Africa's outgoing public protector advocate Tulima Donzela has encouraged her successor advocate Butisiwe Mkwebane to cut her own path. She was speaking at a farewell dinner at Gallagher Convention Center. Matunzela will finish her term next week and has not indicated her future plans just yet. Tabile Mbele reports. Outgoing public protector advocate Tulima Donsela received praises from members of political parties. UDM's Bantu Olomisa says South Africans have come to associate the public protector with the need to promote clean governance. We know the pressures you endured, but you occupied the crease up to the last ball. Well done, sis. It is sad to part ways, yet it is a relief to know that you have laid a firm foundation for your successor. Imagine if you would have achieved if the public protector received adequate funding. Clean governance would be the winner today. The economic freedom fighter says equality, courage and leadership are attributes that fit Matonzela. The EFF Stalimpo will advise her not to retire just yet. You will hopefully join the advocates profession in South Africa. If you do that, then you will be welcomed by me. The second one is... Uh, that you might hopefully join our judiciary uh, because I think you would do a great job there. And if you do that, you'll be interviewed and welcomed by Julius Malema. But uh, I think that the best thing you can do is you must do something where you'll be welcomed by both Julius and myself.
that will be joining the EFF. DNC's Gwede Mantage says the governing party is now wiser because of Matonzela's tough questions. I'm going to report that in this royal party, people slipped it, that actually when they talk of a woman president, they have you in mind. It means, Comrade uh, Dali, uh, that debate is happening in the ANC. You have not started that debate. So don't try to recruit. Matonsela thanked President Jacob Zuma, political parties, the religious community, previous public protectors and members of the public for their support during her term. She had words of advice for her successor advocate, Busisiwe Mkwebanem. I am certain that the, the next public protector is going to take this team to the next level. I am on record as having said that she must not be like me. And I'm asking you as a public not to expect her to be like you, to support her. Because for the team to grow to the next level, it needs a different person. The most important thing is to believe in the purpose of the, of the team, to believe in the constitution. Meanwhile, incoming public protector advocate Buzisiwe Mkwebane says South Africa still has a long way to go regarding equality and poverty alleviation. She says she'll be focusing on assisting the poor while still cracking down on corruption. This is Lira, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's time for news headlines with Onel and Cinti. Zambia's leading opposition United Party for National Development President Hakainde Hichilema and Vice President Geoffrey Mwamba have been arrested. Virts University students in South Africa meet in preparation for Friday's General Assembly and the United Nations Security Council on Thursday unanimously nominates former Portuguese Prime Minister Antonio Guterres to be the next Secretary General. Channel Africa News, I am Onelensinsi. Well, thank you, Onele. Now, Dignity Dreams, a non-governmental organization which focuses on helping South Africa's young girls and women meet their personal hygiene requirements, will host a Dignity High Tea to raise funds in order to provide underprivileged girls a feminine, washable, and reusable sanitary wear, which can be used for up to five years. Their products are SABS absorbency approved. This will make a huge difference in the day-to-day lives of schoolgirls who would otherwise stay away from school. More on this initiative and the event taking place on the 16th of this month from Mrs. Africa 2016 finalist Keris Trubel, who will be hosting the event. When I got involved with Mrs. Mrs. Africa, um, they introduced us to this cause and um, I was actually quite shocked that I'd never even considered this issue before. And, you know, a lot of us grow up in very privileged situations where it's just not something that you ever need to worry about. 
and um, it's something that you just have access to. And I didn't realize how many young women um, just didn't have access to any sort of sanitary wear and they're either using um, something that's very unhygienic like a sock or a, an old t-shirt or they don't use anything at all. Um, and obviously in those sorts of cases they can't go to school or to work or to varsity and you know they miss out on their educations and you know improving their futures. So it started becoming a bit of a passion of mine to raise as much money for the cause as possible. And what kind of support have you received so far in ensuring that the initiative is a success? So I hosted a, a very similar high tea in Cape Town, which was very successful. I had a lot of um, amazing ladies attend. Um, a young girl, one of the matriculants from Mannenberg High School, came and spoke to us um, and told us about her experience firsthand. Um, and people are really extremely generous at my events, you know, buying raffle tickets and buying the tickets and just coming to hear the girls' stories and just being encouraging and sharing the events, and just, you know, um, I've had people do interviews on it. So people are really taking the matter seriously, which is fantastic. How many girls have you been able to reach so far? So I am still raising the funds. Um, but at the end, once my fundraising is complete, I will be able to have provided 350 girls with sanitary packs. That's so a that good number. It's a big number. Yeah. What are you hoping to achieve through the Dignity High Tea that you'll be hosting on the 16th? Well, it's my second last event um, for the campaign so, and for this year. So I want to actually reach the target that I set for myself so that last event, which is the gala dinner, actually exceeds the target so that I can, you know, I don't just want to provide the 350. I've been approached by lots of schools who, who desperately need these packs and I would, I'd like to help more than, than is required of me. So that's the goal. And before I let you go, how can people get involved? Okay, so... First of all, I've got a, a link on Given Games where they can donate if they are not able to attend an event. Otherwise, I'm always promoting the events on my Facebook page. They can um, buy tickets. If they can't attend, they can even um, donate on the ticket links. Um, yeah, so and really, every little bit helps. Each pack is just 200 rand. And then, as you said, it lasts to go for up to five years. So it's really not, it's not a lot of money. But even if you only have 20 rand to contribute, it's something, and it means a lot to the girls. That is Mrs. Africa 2016 finalist Kerris Trubel of Dignity Dreams, a non-governmental organization which focuses on helping South Africa's young girls and women meet their personal hygiene requirements. She was speaking to Amanda Machaga. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says the country's economy could grow by more than 1% next year, which may help avoid a ratings downgrade. Speaking on the sidelines of the Third Africa Summit hosted by the Financial Times in London earlier this week, Gordon said South Africa has put a lot of work into ensuring a united front to improve the economy. Ratings agencies will decide by December whether to downgrade the country credit status. In this exclusive interview with Dan Whitehead, Minister Godan elaborated on issues like the ongoing university protests, plans to boost growth in South Africa and changing conditions on the continent. Clearly, 2016 hasn't been a good year for the continent as a whole, primarily in numbers terms because two of its biggest economies, Nigeria and South Africa, have both had their difficulties in growth terms. And South Africa in particular has been somewhere between zero and less than one percent, and Nigeria is probably in a little bit more, more, more difficulty as well. 
But overall, what we have on the African continent, which is the message that was given to investors here, is still that in the medium to long term, Africa has the democratic graphic advantage, it has an investment advantage, it has the best agricultural land, huge prospects for innovation in manufacturing and in other areas as well, adding benefits to its commodities, both agriculture and mineral. And similarly, in, in the case of South Africa, we will improve our growth rates in, in the coming year. And some of the things that we are doing to structurally change our economy will hold us in good stead as we go forward. Is South Africa having to look elsewhere in order to bring investment into the country, with mining companies more reluctant to invest given the shortcomings in commodities? Is there an expansion into new areas for South Africa? Yeah, I think countries need to, on the one hand, address their immediate challenges, but also invest in the longer term. And you do that by both the government and the private sector investing in, in research and development. And your edge ultimately as a country and as an economy and as the private sector emerges when you do innovative things. Uh, and, and there are several examples that we gave of investment in the space area with the SKA project and the fuel cell technology area. But we have other areas as well where because of the depreciated currency there's been, let's call it a mini boom in tourism. China is investing in its first full car manufacturing plant of small cars in Port Elizabeth, which is an important macroeconomic development. On the agricultural side, there's some innovative things that are happening, both from the private sector and from the government side, which if we can scale up, will begin to make a difference as well. And then finally, countries like South Africa and the many others on the continent that have inadequate savings, partly because of the levels of unemployment that we have and the levels of low-income people that we have have to rely on foreign investment, both in the real economy but also in terms of borrowings as well. And where South Africa, I think, is exceptional in the African context because several other countries have made these mistakes, both in Africa and elsewhere in the developing world, is that we've set our own limits in terms of foreign currency borrowing and we've been very disciplined about that. Uh, and, and so when you have the currency fluctuations, particularly depreciation in the currency, it doesn't have the same negative impact fiscally and otherwise as it has had in, in several other countries around the world as well. The threat of a downgrade for the South African economy remains. What would it mean for the people of South Africa and the Treasury if that were to happen? Firstly, it means reputationally we don't want to be in, the, in that so-called sub-investment or, or junk territory. Secondly, it means extra borrowing costs. And thirdly, those borrowing costs are for the state, for state-owned enterprises, for the private sector. So all of that negativity then begins to impact upon prices for South African citizens more generally as well. It could then inspire higher levels of inflation. You could then move into a cycle of interest rate increases, and that would dampen growth even further. So that's a cycle that you want to avoid. And I certainly believe that we have a case to make as a country, as government, the private sector, and labor, and indeed civil society more generally, that we can fiscally and in growth terms put South Africa in a different place in the next 18 months or so. And that ratings agencies should hear us on the one hand, but secondly, we as a country must also in a very determined way make our case as a collective for our ratings to remain the same as they are and give us the next 18 months in order to implement a lot more aggressively some of the ideas that we have and projects that we have that will tell a different story and place us in a different position.
the violence and disruption which we've seen at universities in South Africa over the fee hikes. What is your response to that? No, well, firstly, let's be clear about what, what has been promised. What has been promised uh, in the Freedom Charter and subsequently is that students who cannot afford to pay their fees and deserve to be in university will be supported by the state. Secondly, we've had an announcement from the Minister of Higher Education which says that those who cannot afford the fees and gain university entrance will be financially supported. And in addition, what we call the missing middle, those families that have an income of less than 600,000 rands per annum will also be supported. At the same time, those who can afford to pay the fees as families must pay the fees because that then is a more equitable way of managing our financial situation as a country. Secondly, there's no place for violence. Violence isn't going to persuade anybody to move outside the parameters that we've actually set out financially speaking. What we can talk about, and some students have begun to do it, is get into the heart of the calculations, show us different ways of approaching this question, And let's engage in a constructive but creative exercise in a calm manner so that we can sit across the table. And if government is missing some opportunity to do things in a different kind of way, point it out to us. We'll certainly be willing to engage in that kind of conversation. But burning buildings and destroying vehicles and so on is something that government, as various ministers within government have indicated, will not tolerate and will not contribute to a positive resolution. And the third point is the one place where return to class has been tested at Wits University, I believe. 77% of the students said they want to go back. And if this is about a democratic process, then I think the majority of the students want to write their exams at the end of the year, and they should not be prevented from doing so. Finally, what are your priorities when it comes to recovering South Africa's economy over the next six to nine months? Well, to produce two budgets that are credible, a framework in, in, the, in October and a budget in February. Secondly, create a more positive environment where government and business and labor and civil society organizations have a common purpose to inspire confidence in our country, to get more investment in our economy, get more projects that will give young people an opportunity Uh, to get work experience and to ensure that all of our collective resources are used for the benefit of all South Africans so that they have better prospects in the future. And finally, to take all of our ideas and make them real. Because without implementing the things we're talking about, both in policy terms but also in reform terms, in other words, things that actually need to change in the South African economy, we won't be able to do justice to the South African population. That is South Africa's finance minister, Pravin Godan, talking to Dan Whitehead in London. 1742 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pumela Lezondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Please send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. On Twitter, we are on Channel Africa One. Amore meni befie en ele arabinila too much Hello uh, hi I'm Salif Keita you listening to Channel Africa the voice of African Renaissance Ilene 
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And time for your economic news with Wasani Matabula. Good evening. Thanks, as Pumelele. Zimbabwe will amend a black empowerment law that aims to transfer majority shares from foreign-owned firms to locals after it was blamed for deterring investment. The indigenization and economic empowerment law requires foreign companies, including mining firms and banks, to transfer at least 51% of shares to black Zimbabweans. But implementing the policy has been difficult, with ministers often issuing conflicting statements Mining accounts for more than half of all export earnings in Zimbabwe. And the 656 uh, railway from Ethiopia to Djibouti has officially begun operating. Ethiopian Prime Minister Haile Meriam Desalin, Djibouti President Ismail Omar and Togo's Fari Nasibe witnessed the official flagging of the Ethiopia Djibouti railway. Desalin says goods and people can now move from Addis Ababa to Djibouti by rail in a day instead of three days on the road. I think it is uh, a gift uh, to the people of uh, Ethiopia and, uh, and Djibouti uh, for uh, cementing a strong re- friendship and relationship between uh, our peoples. So we thank uh, the people and government of China for this. Uh, both uh, in terms of the modern technology acquisition and uh, uh, technology transfer to, to our countries. Malawi and Mozambique have intensified an agreement to interconnect their electricity power networks so that the two countries are connected to the Southern African power pool. This comes hot on the heels of continued power blackouts in Malawi. The power blackouts have caused havoc on both private and public sectors, including households. Most Malawians have uh, power for two or less than an hour per day. The Electricity Supply Commission of Malawi, ESCOM, attribute the power outages to lowering of water levels in the Shire River. George Mango reports from Lilongwe. Through this line, Malawi will be able to trade a minimum of 50 megawatts. The design of this line is to the maximum line capacity of 250 to 350 megawatts. Currently, a request has been sent out to the World Bank to extend the studies to the 
short extension in Zambia between Chipata and Mchinji. Last year, Malawi requested Zambia to share her power so as to contain persistent power blackouts. Tanzania has secured a 1.6 billion US dollars in loans and grants from the World Bank and the IMF. The money will be used to improve power supply, rebuild railways and develop the farming industry. East Africa's second biggest economy is revamping its power generation and hopes to use some of its estimated 57 trillion cubic feet of natural gas reserves to cut its reliance on oil-fired and hydropower plants. And Africa has lost more than 3 billion US dollars of tax income through smuggling, terrorism and corruption since 2014. This was revealed by the head of multilateral and international tax at the African Tax Administration Forum, Tulani Shongwe, during the ATAF conference currently underway in Durban, South Africa. He says security programs must be intensified to curb the loss of tax income due to smuggling and corruption. Shongwe says South Africa needs to champion programs aimed at benefiting the country as a whole, such as combating illicit financial flows and other related activities. Looking now at your financial indicators, the dollar trading at 13.76 South African rands at 10.32 Botswana Pula and 9.83 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.78 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,265, platinum $947 per fine ounce. Brand crude oil is hovering at $49.26 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. It's time for your sports news now with Musibu Dimakura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kotsia says his decision to select Damien De Allende at number 12 for the Saturday's rugby championship clash against the All Blacks of New Zealand was based largely on his partnership with Juan de Jong at the Stormers. Jesse Creel, who has been favoured at number 13 by Kotsia in the recent weeks, did not pass the fitness test and has been ruled out of the match. That sees De Allende return to the box side in the number 12 of Jersey, while Juan de Jong moves to number 13 in a midfield that Kotsia used many times during his time as coach at the Stormers. De Allende has been nowhere near his best this year after having suffered a serious ankle injury at the beginning of the Super Rugby season. On to football news, Burkina Faso's talesman and ageing striker Astride Banse might have failed to make his mark in South African local football while playing for PSL club Chipa United, but his former coach Rogers Kakane says senior national team coach Bafana Bafana Sheikhs Mashaba must ensure that his defence doesn't allow him space to breathe. Kakane, who coached the 32-year-old player last season, was speaking ahead of Bafana Bafana's all-important 2018 Russia World Cup qualifier against the Stallions in Ogodugu, Burkina Faso on Saturday night.
NPCs, you see, it, it is a physical person. The physique of him, it, 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 it can tell you. you see, if he's around the box, yeah, uh, it's very. But uh, there are some other good players around him in, in Burkina Faso. See, it's not about him only, but he did. Uh, I think the whole team must be on toes when they play. But imagine, he might look like he's off the game, maybe 15, 20 minutes. But the first chance, the half chance that he's going to get, is going to to cause the damage. You see. Sound Football News, South Africa's under-17 national team, Amajimbos are en route to India for the BRICS under-17 football club against India set to take place on Friday and are aware that a perfect start into the annual tournament will give them maximum advantage if they are to reach the final of the 10-day tournament. The tournament is aimed at fostering good relations between BRICS countries, South Africa, Brazil, India, Russia, as well as China. Amajimbos head coach Mulefe Nzeki knows the importance of a good start. If we can have more of uh, those uh, weekend camps, those uh, camps during school holidays, then I think uh, by the time we go and play for the qualifiers, the boys would have, uh, have been exposed to um, the demands of international football. I think uh, we, we, we are lucky for this season. If you look at um, Kosafa and Africa in particular, um, we never had Kosafa in, in 2014, but uh, at least this year we had Kosafa and uh, our team uh, did very well in the Kosovo tournament. On to Netball News, South Africa were crowned 2016 Netball Diamond Challenge winners on Wednesday night, beating neighbours Zimbabwe seven, uh, by 68 points to 34 in the final of the, uh, rather in the final at the University of KwaZulu Natal Westville campus. This was Norma Plummer's second Diamond Challenge win after her team defeated Malawi in the 2015 edition. Coach Plummer was delighted with her team's performance. Yes, and this is the sort of um, competition that just helps us blend the team together, gave us a, a chance to do, uh, put out a lot of different options on court. And as you can see tonight, you know, our first part of our game was pretty much full of uh, a bit more aerial ping pong, but in the second half we lowered the pass down and worked the speed of the ball. At the same time, Zimbabwean head coach Lidwina Dondo knows it was always going to be difficult to beat the Spa Proteas. It was very difficult, but they played, they only lost Cambodia during play and made a lot of mistakes. But South Africa is good and we are happy. Uh, we didn't want to allow them to reach the seventh goals. So uh, at least we are happy. And finally, Mariska Fenter, South Africa's wheelchair tennis player, wrapped up the year on a high after winning the Bloom Open at the Ode Studenta Tennis Club in Bloemfontein in the Free State Province on Wednesday. This was Fenter's first major win of the year, beating Tando Tlachwayo 7-5-6-4 in the women's singles final. I'm really, really thrilled about my results and really happy that I pulled through in the final to get my first win for the year. So I'm happy about that. For Zaya Sports News at the Sour, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. 
Your time is 1754 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's recap our top stories. Authorities in Sudan have vehemently dismissed as untrue accusations made by the London-based human rights organization Amnesty International. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has scrapped off two key ministries, including that of internal security and that of the East African Community Affairs. The World Food Program is scaling up its emergency operations in southern Madagascar. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour from myself, Spumele Lezundi, producer Tracy Pumgard, technical producer Debo Mosweu, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, on Twitter, channel Africa One. You can also SMS us, plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. We leave you with... Pendugani by Dozi. Bye.